Welcome to The Force, FIBA on Risk and Compliance Excellence. My name is David Schwartz, President and CEO of the Florida International Bankers Association. On today's episode, we will cover life on the other side, reflections of a former regulator. And what better guest than a well-respected colleague and friend, Sarah Rungi, formerly of the U.S. Treasury Department and now serving as the Global Head of Financial Crimes Compliance Regulatory Strategy at Credit Suisse. Sarah will be sharing with us some of the key learnings after transitioning from wearing the policymaker hat to her current role at a renowned global bank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode in our FIBA podcast series. This one is entitled Life on the Other Side, Reflections of a Former Regulator. And we'll get into the question of regulator versus policymaker uh, later on with Sarah. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with my good friend, Sarah Rungi, former director of the Office of Strategic Policy, Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes at the U.S. Treasury Department, and currently global head of financial crime compliance regulatory strategy at Credit Suisse. While at Treasury, Sarah's duties included developing domestic and international initiatives to address illicit finance through her work with supervisors, law enforcement, and policymakers in the U.S. and globally. And more importantly, her, her work included leading the U.S. delegation to FATF, or the Financial Action Task Force. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we've heard a little bit about your role when you were at Treasury. So tell us a little bit about your current role at Credit Suisse. Yes, that's an excellent question. So I was brought in to CS um, initially to report to the global head of financial crimes compliance. Uh, he was based in, in Switzerland and Zurich, who's somebody I'd known for a long time. And the idea was to coordinate and um, sort of synthesize our communication globally with regulators, but it was also to take a, take a look strategically across um, our exams, our responses, as well as global enforcement actions to identify trends and pain points potentially for us as a firm so that we could be more prepared for those. So in other words, are we, do we have supervisors who are consistently identifying the same challenges? You know, so therefore, can we get ahead of that you know, at the next exam at the next location? Um, and also trying to ensure that we, we've had a tremendous systems build out over the last three to four or five years and as we are rolling out, developing in-house and implementing new systems that, that we're doing so at different locations, at different points in time, that we're consistently communicating what we're doing, why we're doing it, and, and how we're doing it. And so trying to, to get our arms around a consistent communication and narrative around that. But I should also say there's like a lot of stuff that I do in addition to that that's just sort of been organically developed over time, which is why I always I'm always a bit challenged to talk about what I do because of because I am based in Washington and then obviously have the closest proximity to our New York um, office. I have spent quite a bit of time in New York and I've gotten very involved in um, a U.S. exam and results and developing some programs and helping them, particularly on the regulatory front. Um, because that's where I have a very deep, deep background, obviously. Um, so I do do quite a bit with, with New York. Um, and then I get involved in a variety of other things, including responses to FINMA and other things in Switzerland. So I've gotten, I've, I have to say, it's been great because I've been exposed 
to just about everything. And that's really what I wanted in order to understand from where I came from, how this all comes together and how it, how it works. I can't say I, I know all that yet, but I definitely have a much better understanding than I did. Well, good. And, and we'll get to a couple of, of questions on, on that transition and, <clears throat> and what it's been like. Um, but you mentioned that you were, you were able to participate in your first exam. And I'm curious, coming from policy, coming from Treasury, uh, what were your impressions? What was it like for you to, to see how the exam process worked from the bank side as opposed to from the Treasury side? Yeah, so I think one thing, and this is true where we operate everywhere, um, but certainly as part of the U.S. exam, I think the cadence of it, so not, so in other words, the, the work you have to do in advance and the response to the first day letter, that's all fine. But then as the exam goes on and the requests for additional information and answers and responses, it is basically a lot more, it's unbelievably labor intensive. Um, and just from a resource perspective, it's really, it's almost impossible to manage um, because of just the volumes. It's not just about providing information, it's answering questions, it's providing all that. And as you know, that goes on for, for months. So I would say that it certainly is, I mean, I knew it was intense, but I certainly have a better understanding for, for that intensity. I would say the other big thing is, I, I don't know how you manage regulatory engagement, whether that's exams or subsequent things to exams, um, and run your BAU. I mean, I think that is fundamentally the, the question because, you know, it's, you basically need twice the staff. One, to just be responsive, for example, to an exam as it's going on, and the other just to maintain the program. So I'd say that's the other big observation I had. So our good friend and former director of FinCEN, Jenner Chasky, uh, after she left FinCEN and moved over to uh, HSBC, uh, I had asked her, you know, what, what was the biggest surprise that you had in moving over? And her response was how bureaucratic banks are. And she admitted that, that she was reaping what she had sown uh, during her time at FinCEN. So you talk about, uh, you know, the challenges there and how surprising it is to see how labor intensive that is and resource allocation is challenging. Um, would you say in looking at uh, the structure of these exams and what banks have to deal with that it was a surprise for you? I mean, was it, was it something that you expected? I mean, I would say the types of things they were asking were, were along the lines of what I expected. Um, I think inevitably what happens, and this is what I had heard anecdotally, and I think this is true, is that you do have examiners with specific areas of expertise where they have a tendency to spend more time, and we certainly saw that to be true. Um, but but I, I don't think it was a surprise in that respect. And, and I think it's important to distinguish the bureaucracy from everything else, because I don't think that the bureaucracy is a result of regulation. The bureaucracy is a result of the way banks are oriented. And what I think is so interesting is that Treasury, and I can only speak for Treasury, not all of the government, is a very well-organized bureaucracy. So it is a bureaucracy, but it's incredibly well-organized. And I would say the opposite of true is true of banks. 
at least CS in my experience. Um, but I feel like that's more an issue and about organic growth than than about say regulation, for example. That's that's an interesting comment. Bureaucracy is a result of the way banks are organized, and if you would well, no, ask or the, way, no, the way they've grown so organically, so mergers, acquisitions, like it could be a lot of different things is what I mean. Whereas if you think about the Treasury Department, the Treasury Department has had one secretary and one deputy secretary, three undersecretaries, you know, all of that forever. Right. So whereas banks, as you know, reorganize, right, they on a not infrequent basis and they reevaluate how they resources and you know with us as a firm are we going to be organized regionally or by business or like all of these things that kind of thing right well i'm sure there'd be many bankers that might disagree with your statement on the how well organized the bureaucracy is at treasury well uh, have they worked at treasury though because at least i'm speaking from being on both <laughs> sides right but um you know you you may still have some type of uh loyalty uh, in terms of how you speak about them. Uh, I think there are others that have come out of Treasury that may not hold the same opinion in terms of organization. And, and I think part of that really has to do with resources. I mean, the difference is that banks uh, invest a lot in resources. I don't think they have much of a choice and, and we're seeing that continue. Yeah. Whereas Treasury, as with any government agency, uh, has those limitations. And, yeah. and I think that that's really the thrust of, of the difference. So it wasn't a shot at Treasury. No, no, I guess what I'm saying is I can only speak about Treasury and I can only speak about CS, right? So I think, you know, I had always heard before I left Treasury from people who had used to work in government and went to work at banks for me to, to buckle up as it related to bureaucracy within financial institutions. And again, I'm not at all saying that Treasury wasn't, it was absolutely bureaucratic. I'm just saying that it was a organized, organized bureaucracy. I don't think that's okay. a compliment. I guess that's where I'm going. I, I <laughs> no, I would say if you have an organized bureaucracy that, uh, that that is a compliment. And it's true, banks do face these challenges. Um, a lot of M&A, mergers and acquisitions, a lot of expansion. And it's true, you wind up having uh, different philosophies because now you're putting together two completely different institutions. And the struggle goes on as to how is that combination going to work? Which philosophy will take over? Or we create a, a completely different philosophy. And, and that is a challenge, particularly for the larger institutions. But at the same time, while they're going through that, they have to deal with the ever-changing um, regulations, the, the sheer volume of regulation that they have to, to deal with. Um, you know, so what, what would you say was your biggest challenge in moving from the public to the private sector? I would say knowing how to get things done because that because it's not organized bureaucracy, the decision-making processes are not linear, they're not well mapped out, it's not clear. Um, and, and you will appreciate this, you know, one thing I, in retrospect, you know, my success at Treasury was measured on the outcomes I achieved. 
right? So did I successfully, you know, get a reg out or negotiate why or have a meeting with these parties in which this was decided, right? Um, or, you know, get the view of the secretary about we were going to support a certain policy. Um, the process was irrelevant. Nobody was ever going to ask me to demonstrate, to document how I got there, right? You know where I'm going. Right. Whereas in banks, obviously that process is is fundamental. If you can't demonstrate the the paper trail, the outcome is irrelevant. And I think you know, I think all everyone will appreciate that coming from me too. It's all about you know. So anyway, so that and that's hard for me because I'm a, I'm a doer. I just want to get things done, and so I focus on achieving an outcome. And it was hard for me to learn that I you know. The joke is, you know, a meeting didn't happen if there wasn't a PowerPoint, you know, for it. And I mean, it's it's that arcane, as you know. So I think that's been that's been a mindset change for me, for sure. We will be right back with Sarah Rungi, Global Head of Financial Crimes Compliance Regulatory Strategy at Credit Suisse, who is sharing her experience on the other side, having a new role as a bank after a successful career as a policymaker. Welcome back. Today our guest is Sarah Rungi, Global Head of Financial Crimes Compliance Regulatory Strategy at Credit Suisse, and she's sharing some insights since she transitioned from the Department of Treasury to her current role at Credit Suisse Bank. Well, I mean, that's true, and yes, we have to leave paper trails everywhere and document everything, but you know, where, where does that initiative come from? Where does that oh, yeah. requirement come from? And again, there you come from the regulatory side. Yeah, a thousand percent. Elsa. Agree with that. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. That's why I. That's why I think I'm pointing it out because I recognize that. Yeah. So again, that comes back to Jen's comment of reaping what you've sown. So you've put all of this in motion, and now you're in that bureaucracy. You're in that environment that, as you said doesn't have the freedom that you were used to because of all the additional work that yep. you have to do in documenting everything. Yep. So you can feel our pain a little bit. Well, and I like the fact, Dave, that you say we, because you don't technically work for a bank. You work at an association. Remember, I spent more than 30 years I know, at banking, I know. and I represent I banks. Say, so. You're not in that world anymore either. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it's an interesting question that you would have a better response to. What is the, um, what is the, you know, where did the documentation piece of this come from? So, you know, the U.S. from a principle-based BSA, you know, how, I mean, it was regulatory expectations, right? I mean, I guess that's my question is I didn't, I don't view that as something embedded in a regulation. It's something that evolves over time. So, you know, I th so it's more, and I think my ignorance on that, if nothing else, demonstrates that because I wrote a rule not understanding that the outcome was that. So, Clearly, that wasn't my intention. So I guess my question is, to your point, I mean, I agree with you, but how did we get here? Because it's not like the reg says, and by the way, document every decision, you know, about what, why you took on or didn't take on or whatever it is. Well, and, and here's where we get into that communication issue and something you've heard me argue about for many years, the, the disconnect between what's said in Washington and what happens in the field. Yeah. So I can give you a recent example of one of our banks that's undergoing an exam from their federal functional regulator and the examiner supervisor supervisor examiner on site is asking 
where is your risk assessment for every product that you have? We said, every product? We don't have a risk assessment on every single product. Well, you should, you must. And said, no, why do I have, where does it say that I have to have this as you were just alluding to? Doesn't say in the reg, I have to conduct a risk assessment for every single product that I have. But here's your examiner insisting that it be done. And so that's where where this comes from. And that's the challenge, um, you know, that banks face. I I think it'd be good. You can sit in on a couple more exams and maybe you'll see that in action and, and understand how it works. Yeah. So, um, so given that, and it's interesting because, you know, you're saying that basically your role with treasury didn't prepare you for that. I mean, it's a completely different environment, but what do you bring from your experience at treasury that does help you in your current role? So, I mean, I think that the number one thing is subject matter expertise. I don't, you know, there are a few very candidly, I think there are a few people who have the breadth and depth of knowledge. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, even when new regulations come out, like the Cayman Islands, and we have people looking at them, and they're not understanding some of the requirements. And, I, and I'm like, oh, well, it's directly from FATF Recommendation 10. This is what the intention is. This is how you meet that. Um, because, for example, there are things that are not in U.S. regulations. So, A, having that perspective understanding the broader context of how it fits together, understanding and being able to think through what is what is risk from a, from a real risk perspective, you know, what types of things, you know, when should we be getting more? Um, yeah, I, I think those, those things for sure. I'm also, you know, used to hurting cats. <laughs> so, um, you know, despite the bureaucracy, it's not like, again, it, it, what, I'm not saying Treasury didn't have it. Um, the difference was I knew everybody, so it was easier. So it's just taken, it's taken time. Um, but uh, I was pretty good at herding cats too. Um, and then I guess the big thing, and I don't know if this is a treasury thing or what, but I, I have no problem taking responsibility and being accountable. And I, I do that every day. I'm the first person to put my hand up and say, you know, yay or nay, or if you don't like it, that's okay. It was my idea. Or I do that all the time. Well, you've always done that. I have. I I, I acknowledge that. Um, So in, I imagine that you're still keeping in touch with Treasury and conversations over uh, regulations or policy changes or new decisions that may be coming out. Uh, Just out of curiosity, they treat you any differently? Or are you still on that same? Um, it's, It's, it depends on the person. It's all about the individual. I'll just say that. Okay. I'll let you get away with that short answer. (laughs) Um, Just, and one more point on, on treasury and your time at treasury. So you've been now a couple years now, right? Yeah. So looking at your policy decisions that maybe led to regulations that now you're obliged to comply with, um, anything you would have changed? So there are some things, um, I mean, the one obviously, as you know, that I was most involved in was the customer due diligence role. And there are definitely some things that um, in retrospect, I mean, it's interesting because we talk about them in the firm, 
and I think you've, you and I have had this conversation, I would say the extent to which we received comment letters about issues, we would dive into them. And there were a couple of issues that were identified after all of the comment periods were closed. There was nothing we could do about it, so we had identified. And then there are a couple of, of definitely some pain points um, that I recognize that, you know, if I, if I could, if I could, in the words of Cher, if I could turn back time, um, I think they'd be valuable because again, our intention was always to balance risk and, and reward uh, and burden, sorry, risk and burden. And I think there's some things that are more burdensome and, and you know, you will appreciate, I mean, one of the things that I've gotten really involved in is affiliate um, remediation and affiliate due diligence in New York. And it's something that I did again, I've sort of allowed myself to get pulled a different direction so that I could actually understand. So when we're asking for, um, you know, the customer, the beneficial ownership form, the CBO, the certification, or, you know, all of these things, like I'm, I'm living it, I'm living the dream. And, you know, what our exemptions are and when we've identified whether or not, because we, we obviously have a lot of institutional clients and foreign financial institution clients. So, um, so definitely keenly aware sometimes where I'll say, you know, I think we're asking for this and I, I don't think that it, that it is, is helpful from a risk management perspective. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, that's, that's the most obvious one because it's one I've been involved in in the firm and one that I was intimately involved in um, at Treasury too. Oh yes, you were. We had some lively conversations over <laughs> the rule uh, before, during, and, and after, I mean, it only took, depending on who you talk to, as you say, it depends on the person, it only took anywhere from six to 10 to 15 to 20 years to yeah. get it out. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think all of those are right. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about regulations, um, you know, FinCEN, the regulatory agencies, in spite of the pandemic uh, and, and the issues that it's brought, have been very active this year. Yeah, very guidance, active. proposed rules. Let's talk about a couple of them uh, that I think are important. And the first one, and you and I have talked about this before, PEP guidance, politically exposed persons. And I think it's nice you know, to come out and clarify with something which uh, I think we had all understood in, in any case was PEPs are not automatically high risk just by virtue of their status. You still need to conduct your, you know, your review, your customer due diligence. And then at the end of that, you determine whether you're going to qualify them low, medium or high risk. An interesting statement in there. The agencies do not interpret the term politically exposed persons to include U.S public officials. And that's something which, um, you know, I've uh, advocated uh, neither for or, or against, but really put on the table because you know, we work um, not exclusively, but mostly in Latin America and the Caribbean. Yeah. And they've been offended by the fact, of course, that PEPs are only considered foreign officials. Why are U.S. officials not PEPs? Are you telling us that U.S. PEPs are not corrupt? There's no corruption in the United States. And so you led the U.S. delegation to FATF, and you're talking about your depth of knowledge of the recommendations. And it would seem that outright designation of U.S. public officials as non-PEPs would go against FATF recommendation. So we already have a PC, 
Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as the former head of the U.S. delegation to FATF, how do you reconcile that? So I think there are two different two different pieces to this. The first is the objectives, I think, of what the statement is. And I think of, I think, and, and you're involved in BSEC, so you know better than I. I understand there are two objectives in terms of some of the things that are coming out of the banking agencies in FinCEN. One is to distinguish between regulatory expectations and regulatory requirements. And the other is to try to codify the risk-based approach, the extent that you can do that in regulation, which sort of sounds oxymoronic as I say it, right? Um, so I think the intention, which is accurate, is that the U.S. regulation, it is true, right, does not require. Um, uh, in, in fact, if we have the U.S. has the most narrow uh, definition of what falls into the senior foreign uh, senior foreign public official, over a million dollars, private banking, right, all that. So it's incredibly narrow already, and it clearly does not include domestics as a matter of course within the regulation. So I feel like the intent was to say that. And they said that. Um, okay. Now, I will say, in my mind, that goes against the second point I made, which was the RBA, because I think the RBA means that you know you don't prejudge one way or the other. You, based on circumstance, facts, circumstances, information, due diligence, you make an assessment. So it's not categorical. So I think that's one part of that that I struggle a little bit with. To go back to your point on that, if I advocated very strongly for the U.S. for the incorporation of domestic PEPs into Recommendation 12 on the basis that um, it isn't a one-size-fits-all, and depending on where the jurisdiction is in particular, you might have higher risk um, for foreign versus domestic or domestic versus foreign, but you shouldn't take one off the table. So I, I do think that, um, and my view as a general matter would be is, is a good sound risk management, you should assess these individuals and depending on a variety of factors, they should become high risk. So, you know, it, it is, it's an interesting one. And I, again, I, I, as I understand, that was the spirit of doing it. Now, I guess the real question for me is, is any bank in the U.S. going to change their policies as a result of this? That's my question. No. Everyone... You're, I was going to say, you're wrong. No. I mean, my he's, policy. He's shaking his head no, everybody. No, yeah. no. My policy, you know, in my last <clears throat> position had always been the same. Yep. I treated all these customers with a level playing field when we started off. We did our analysis. We, at, we looked at source of wealth, source of funds, you know, the whole, the whole thing um, before determining the, the risk level. So I think for most banks, and particularly our institutions in South Florida, it won't change anything. For my friends in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, who look at it from the outside, and again, <clears throat> this, is, this is where we always run into the issue. So when the famous Mossack and Fonseca happened, the outcry from Panama was, well, <laughs> you have Delaware, you have no transparency in your incorporation in the United States. Why are you picking on us? Mm -hmm. So now we have a second one. Well, FATF says the domestic PAP, domestic politically exposed persons are exist. Now you in the United States say they don't. So as far as we're concerned, that's two, two FATF recommendations, which you're not in compliance with. We're on the gray list. Why aren't you? But I actually would have thought their argument would have been, we see that the U.S. no longer has made it clear that you do not have to treat um, 
you know, these people as, or, you know, because I mean, I, the point is, is that the policy hasn't changed as you stated for these institutions. So whether or not FATF says it, and I take your point, um, the point is that institutions are not changing their policies. I might think that would give them comfort. And as it relates to FATF, I mean, you know this too. I mean, one recommendation or some of our others do not. But yes, I mean, yeah, it seems to me we're going to go to an NC on R12, but that is what it is. No, I think, um, no, I mean, none of our banks are sitting down and drawing up their policies and procedures based on FATF recommendations. They're obviously looking to U.S. regulation and more importantly, um, what happens during an exam. Because uh, as I said, we still have, as much as my friends in Washington will argue with me, there is still a disconnect between Washington policy and field exam process. But will they really, are they still really arguing? I thought, I thought we'd reached a point where everybody understood that that was a challenge. Is that not true? No, because as you know, it's something I always bring up. And what, I'm be, what I've been told well, now we have monthly calls um, between FinCEN, Treasury, and the regulatory agencies, and we discuss what has to happen. And then the regulatory agencies tell me, and we have the same types of calls. So this all filters down. Um, and, and coming back to something that you had mentioned earlier about the exam in, in New York is where you talked about how examiners may have a specific expertise. Well, for example, in the case of this bank that's currently being examined, uh -oh. actually the exam is over, um, there may have been a lack of expertise. They were training the regulators mm -hmm. and it was openly admitted. And I've always said, that's fine. We don't have a problem training you. Uh, will you reduce the exam fee or can we charge you for the training? I mean, how can we work this out? But it's still an issue or maybe it's an issue potentially that's coming back. Um, because of now all the new guidance, the heightened scrutiny, um, there's been yeah. a lot of turnover in yeah. both sides, regulatory as well as in the bank uh, risk and compliance areas. Um, so we, we're seeing it. We're seeing yeah. it again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is one that, you know, certainly everyone, you know, when I was there and I think still is trying to figure out how to solve that. I think it's a difficult issue to solve. I mean, I don't know what your, I'm sure you provided your recommendations. I think that's part of the problem is I, I have never, I've never felt that the, I mean, I think that's why they have the monthly calls, right? There was a recognition, but how do you get from, but then what, you know, again, so if we draw the corollary, if we were a bank, we'd have to run a control. We'd have to see if it really worked and whether or not, right? I mean, where's the, where's is, the assessment of that process? Where's the audit? Where's the audit of the process? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. I appreciate I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, uh, I, 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 really I, speak, I can speak your, your language now, David. Well, that's good. That's greatly appreciated. So that is one good takeaway from you moving <laughs> to the other side, <laughs> is that you're coming into the light and you're starting to understand uh, a little better what the impact is. And, and this is something that I've asked every FinCEN director going all the way back to, to Jim Freeze was, well, you know, if we want to have a better understanding and we want this process to work better, I have a great idea. Let's do uh, a swap. So how about people from Treasury, FinCEN, OFAC, wherever, come into a bank. It's going to be a challenge to try and figure out how you do that and all the confidentiality, et cetera. And they get to work for six months 
and see what all those, how those processes are being implemented. You know, what are the consequences, as we've always argued, unintended consequences yeah. Yeah. of some of these actions. And, and we could send somebody over to intern in treasury, wherever, and they can understand how the policy process goes. And maybe at the end of that, now you have kind of a, a policy gimlet, so to speak, where you get together and say, you know what, now we can really correct as opposed to committees, and I can't name any, uh, where you sit down and you've got law enforcement and regulators and industry and trade groups, et cetera. Um, but they're still talking from their side of the street. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you. I mean, I actually say this with some frequency now. And, and while I agree that cross-pollination would be ideal, um, I think the biggest issue is that particularly in the AML space, not in the sanctioned space, um, and in the supervisory space, you, how many bankers do you know at FinCEN now? How many bankers, former bankers, do you know at any of the federal banking agencies? It goes the other way. And we, I mean, ultimately it's, I mean, it's about progression financially too. That's part of the, I think that's part of the challenge. And then some people don't over time want to live in DC, but I have to say, I think if we had people with that experience and background. And then to your point, I actually think it'd be more interesting, again, from where I, where, where I came from, to put me or others into a financial institution and then the AML, and I'm being very specific about that, not sanctions on the AML side, for six months to say that you're gonna spend most of your time rationalizing your decisions, not, not making the decision. You're gonna make, spend most of your time you know, chasing KYC data information. You're going to spend most of your time, you know, there, there isn't, as you know, a lot of time or energy for the big think in the private sector, right? That's just, that's a, that's a luxury. It's more like everything's got to happen. And anyway, so I agree with you. And I say this a lot. I, I really wish that there was particularly going back um, some sort of program to, to say, we need to institute this. And, you know, when I was at Treasury, that's why I, I really tried to have as close to that conversation as I could, recognizing I didn't know. But it's never, it's never quite the same. And if you don't have people who've worked in the government, they don't understand they need to say to me things like, Sarah, we have to have a policy and procedure for everything. Sarah, we have to document everything. Sarah, we spend all of our time, you know, we don't get to think about, well, where's the risk? And, you know, what type of enhanced due diligence should we do in this scenario versus that scenario? And it's more like, oh my God, let's just get enhanced diligence and get it done and document it. And, you know, and it's, it's sort of funny. Like, how do you not have a check the box mentality in a, in a financial institution? It's really hard. In a few minutes, we will be back with former policymaker, Sarah Runge, talking about life on the other side. What are the differences, key learnings and challenges she has faced? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Florida International Bankers Association, The Force, FIBA on Risk and Compliance Excellence Podcast. My name is David Schwartz, President and CEO of the Florida International Bankers Association. Today, we are speaking with Sarah Runge, Global Head of Financial Crimes Compliance Regulatory Strategy at Credit Suisse, in a friendly conversation about her transition to working in banking after serving many years as a policymaker in the Department of Treasury. No, it is. It's, it's a challenge. And, and, you know, there is the concern that if I don't check that box, what's going to happen to me? Yep. And I think last year, this year and last year have been 
interesting years again in terms of regulatory actions, uh, fines, and everybody thought, well, you know, current administration is going to take care of all that. We're not going to have that anymore. And now you have the call after, of course, the FinCEN files that, well, going forward, you know, deferred prosecution agreements, uh, no action, uh, fines, that's not enough. People have to go to jail. We have to put bankers in jail. It's the only way we can stop this behavior. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, it's right. It's exactly what we heard after the HSBC um, <clears throat> deferred prosecution agreement. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a whole separate conversation about, I think, the lack of understanding about the regime that, that came out as part of the FinCEN files. Um, and, you know, there's no question, and just separate from the files, right? Because ultimately, I think there's a misunderstanding about what SAR represents or doesn't represent. And, you know, the dialogue, some dialogue I've heard appropriately is, you know, collectively, there's a lot of information that it doesn't seem like we're maybe using to the best of its ability. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair criticism of the regime as a whole. Um, you know, what I, in terms of putting people in jail, you know, do I think banks are perfect? No, our bank isn't perfect. I don't. Um, do I think many of them, including ours, is, is, are, are trying to do the right things? Is it hard? Yes, it is. Um, but this idea that, you know, a financial institution isn't going to know pain until you put somebody in jail. Um, I mean, I got I have such respect for money laundering reporting officers, particularly in the United States. Um, that is not a job, this idea, like that's the glory job. That is, to me, that's actually probably about the hardest job in the world. You know, and I think, I wonder if you and I were talking about this, but one of these things that I've developed over time is like, there are no heroes in FCC, right? No heroes. Nobody after an exam, it's never like this moment. Everybody's like, oh my God, you did such a great job, you know? So you just have to think about that from a job satisfaction perspective. It's really challenging. So that's all, all a long way of saying that. I think it's, it's, it's difficult enough. Of course, if somebody knowingly or willingly breaks the law, of course. But to suggest that the vast majority of institutions, you know, as you know, the major narrative coming out of finance, fence and files, all the banks are knowingly laundering, they're, they're laundering all this money, they know about it, they just have to file a SAR, it's a get, of, get out of jail free card. They've got it so easy, you know, lock them up. The, the presumption is a fundamental misunderstanding about what those SARs represent. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's unfortunate because in, I felt this way when I was in government too. I, you know, the banks are the bad guys 100%. I mean, there's, there's no way you know, I, I used to try to work when I was at Treasury to say to some of the banks I worked with, you know, try to tell some good news stories because there's a lot of things that you do. And some have started to do that or they've tried to do it. I don't know that it helps, but I just think it's unfortunate because these are difficult jobs. You know, they're difficult within the bank. They're difficult publicly. Um, and they're, they're high risk, low reward, really, in banking. No, there, <clears throat> there's no doubt about that. I was laughing when you said that because no, nobody ever stood up and applauded when I came in the room and said, oh, great. What a great job. You've been protecting us. We haven't had yep. any regulatory issues. Great exam we got through. Oh, man. No, nothing like that. That, that doesn't happen. Um, and so, yes, it is a challenge because when you're not on the business line, you're looked as the bad guy. 
Uh, and it's still that way. The business line yeah. still looks at, yeah. you know, risk and compliance yeah. as the bad guys. Mm-hmm. The Darth Vader's of the bank, you know, the mm-hmm. no, they always say no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate. It really is because if you create that partnership, it'll make it a lot easier. No, compliance doesn't want to say no to everything. But if you can't justify something, if you can't come up with, you know, the, the evidence, then you have no choice. So, yes, it is, it is a thankless job. There's, there's no doubt. Um, so, second, the ANPRM, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking as to how we are going to modernize our regulatory regime and cure all of the defects that we have because the BSA is 50 years old and we haven't tweaked it. And there are a lot of things being thrown around. And yes, we are finalizing our comment letter, not all of the points that we're raising necessarily answered the questions that were raised because I don't think it was all encompassing in, in terms of what some of the issues are. But over and over again, uh, we hear in, in the ANPRM the talk of, you know, effective and reasonably designed or to provide, you know, effective information for law enforcement to act upon. Effectiveness, effectiveness, effectiveness. Well, you know, it, it's one thing we want to be effective and we understand where some of the shortcomings are. So we filed two million... No, as in, not just us as an industry, mm-hmm. but in total, 2 million SARS a year get filed. 2 million. And how many of them are valuable? Small percentage. Even though law enforcement will continue the mantra, we don't know what we don't know, so keep those SARS coming. Um, but how can you have a regime that is effective and an industry that provides effective uh, information, uh, actionable data to law enforcement, to the regulators, when we are checking the box all the time, when we are worried about making sure we document it. We're filing some of these SARS because we better, or it could be a problem, defensive. And we're told, keep filing those defensive SARS. Yeah. As recently as the last couple of exams that I've talked to some of our banks about, they were told, just file just file by the regulator, by the examiner, just file. So we're, how do we fix it? You know, I think, look, my, my main two thoughts on the AMPRM is it's sort of like on the PEPs thing. I think the intentions are, are really good. I think it's really positive that there's a recognition and a dialogue. And I think that's incredibly important. This is incredibly difficult to do. So I also give a lot of credit for, for trying to do this. But whenever I talk to people, and I've been involved in a number of discussions with some of the associations about the comment letters, you know, to your point, it's like, well, let's just take a minute and think about what do we want this to look like? Is that, e- is that easier to think of it? Because it's really hard to do it in the context of the AMPRM. And anyway, I don't have all the answers here. And I will also say, as I mentioned, you, you participate in BSAG. What I've noticed is there's a real distinction between people who participate in BSAG and everyone else in terms of their understanding about it and dialogue around it. 
Um, you'll also appreciate that I've been advocating for, for FinCEN to conduct a series of town halls if we get through this pandemic to actually have an open dialogue. And I'm hoping you will take that to BSAG, David. Um, I can't think of a better conversation than that because this is a great, this is you know potentially a really fun conversation about how do we want this to look and what's really important. So I think that there's that. I think one of the fundamental challenges we have as an industry and as a regime is what we mean by useful to law enforcement. So it shouldn't just be about a SAR that they read and it shouldn't just be about a SAR that contributes to an investigation. It should be about, you know, what else is it that financial institutions see or identify? Maybe it's risk, right? Other things that are useful to policymaking, you know, think about it. Like, and, and as I think, look, you know, CS is a very unique firm in the US. We don't have retail and we don't have dollar clearing. And I think it's so important. What I worry a little bit about is that useful is going to be viewed as the number of SARS and those that are read or utilized or the number of you know, subpoena requests. Well, if you're not a retail bank or a dollar clearer, you're not getting a lot of those and you're not filing a lot of SARS. So, you know, that we have to think much more broadly about what do we want this regime to accomplish and how is it collectively we can do that? And, you know, that's a, we're a global bank. How do you think the, the smallest retail banks feel about this? I mean, they're never, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. So the point is, I don't have an answer to your question. I think that, I mean, personally, I would always go to rethinking the rule book. I would always start there. Um, which again, to your point, recognizing now the challenges in implementing the CDD rule and the terror that goes through my heart at the idea that, for example, if the Hill were to pass legislation that they were to, to tweak the definition, right? I mean, like I have a heart attack, David, you'll be happy to know because I know how long it took us to get to where we are. So, but at the same time, what I'd like to think about is look, starting with the rule book to say, you know, are we, are, is, is this everything we need? Is this how we want to be thinking about it? And are there things that we don't need? And just making it more cohesive, not to mention bringing other industries into the fold, right? All of that. And then thinking about how it's communicated. You know, the BSA was a principles-based rec. It was, you know, it's a principles-based um, law. But over time, regulatory expectations and guidance have turned it into something prescriptive and um, that those are the regulatory expectations. Well, <clears throat> no, and, and I agree. Uh, if, if you want to fix that, let's take the rule book and let's look I'm at the so rule book. I'm glad you first. agree with me. Well, you know, I think it's much easier. We agree on so many things now that you're not in treasury anymore trying to force <laughs> this policy on me. <laughs> and, and I read that, uh, you know, the legislation where they did want to tweak, uh, you're being kind, tweak the definition. Uh, it went so much further than that. And it, I, I don't see how it could ever have, have been implemented. I mean, banks really would have, uh, if, if, they, if they think we're struggling with it now, Exactly. Uh, it, it would have been impossible. Yeah. And you would have seen probably a doubling number of SARS out there, yeah. uh, just in all in, in a defensive mode. So I agree. And, and the town hall, um, I'd love that because I asked. I asked back with the CDD rule. You know, I've always asked to have Treasury come down, yeah. let's sit in front of the membership, yeah. and let's talk about these issues. And you know, I, I remember when we used to do that. Now we'll go back to the days of our friend Chip Ponzi. And yeah. he came down with Chip. And we did that. 
we sat yeah. there and we sat in a room and we exchanged those ideas. And that's the way you move forward. Yeah. Uh, and we're still, the BSAG, I, I think, is, is doing uh, much better work. Yeah. Uh, I'm very pleased with the direction. I, I think the ANPRM coming out uh, is a great example uh, of how that's moving forward. There's still a long way to go, and I know there are still a lot of challenges in, in how to put together this public-private partnership. Um, but they're starting to take shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what that looks like going forward, uh, how, how, things, uh, how things shake out. Uh, hopefully, uh, that attitude of let's go after the banks uh, it will not prevail and will continue along this path because um, there, there's a lot of work uh, to be done. Um, you know, this, this idea, uh, talking to one of our banks uh, last night, and they're asking me about the ANPRM and they said, well, this thing where they're talking about recommending resource reallocation. He said, I just hired two new people. So I don't know what they mean by reallocation because I need more people. Yeah. When I talk to law enforcement who tell me, you know what our biggest challenge is, uh, how do we understand all of this activity when I don't have the resource to hire forensic accountants, for example. Uh, How how do we do that? So you do see some high profile cases that do come out. And I understand you're going after that high profile case, but there are probably many more cases that are under the radar that aren't being chased because of that lack of resources. Yeah. So, well, Sarah, it has been a pleasure as always. So nice to see you. You too. I think, you know, the conversation will continue. Uh, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, I think it's great to get your insights because yes, I mean, over the years, we had a lot of great conversations with you in treasury. And I think as you continue to gain, you know, more experience, particularly in this exam process to see how it, how it works and, and what the consequences are for the bank that I think that your opinions will be just as important on the financial industry side as they were on the treasury side. So we will do this again. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Stay safe. uh, Be careful out there. And we'll talk to you again soon. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Sarah for her candidness, honesty, and incredible insight. And thank you for joining us for this episode of The Force, FIBA on Risk and Compliance Excellence Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Apple iTunes or Spotify as we seek to bring you the latest experience and knowledge in banking trends, advocacy, anti-money laundering, fintech, and all topics pertaining to our international banking community.